our scripture reading this morning is in Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And this is found in the Pew Bible on page 1029. If you are new or been coming and you do not have a Bible of your own, we would love for you to have one. So please feel free to just take that one home with you. Again, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kate. Well, good morning again, and my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. It's great to see each of you this morning, and we're continuing in our series in the first few chapters of Revelation. We're not preaching the, the entire book of Revelation, but looking at these first two or three chapters where you actually find Jesus writing, speaking, three or seven letters to seven actual churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, and encouraging them on how to be faithful to him in the midst of all kinds of struggle and opposition and persecution. And so um, we're just spending a few weeks looking at these seven letters to these seven churches, and we're continuing now with this letter to the city uh, of Pergamum this morning. So as we take a look at this letter together, um, I want to pray and ask that God would be at work speaking and um, helping us to hear him this morning. So Father in heaven, thank you that you, uh, as we sang a moment ago, that you spoke and a hundred billion galaxies came to be. Um, that the, the breath of your word has spoken reality into existence, and yet uh, you have also spoken to us in human language and human words and recorded and preserved for us in the scriptures your very words to us. So I pray this morning we would treasure them and that you would speak to us afresh through them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. By the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, there was a time, uh, actually not all that long ago, when, when the majority of people sincerely, honestly believed that this, <laughs> that this, <laughs> that this was not bad for you, that this was, that this was harmless uh, maybe, and if the ads would have you believe, was maybe even healthy for you, uh, and, you know, right, despite the choking, the coughing, uh, people believe that this actually wasn't that dangerous. Uh, in fact, in the 1930s, 
the American Medical Association Journal actually regularly ran uh, cigarette ads in its medical journal. And in 1946, Camel Cigarettes began a, a major ad push that featured doctors smoking cigarettes. These ran all over the place uh, with the line, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarettes, right? So you have doctors in lab coats uh, from all the, you can Google this, there's lots of different versions of this ad, different, all different specialties, doctors smoke camels. And, and, and more than that, other ads that name that, while you couldn't necessarily prove that, that cigarettes were, had curative power, that at least Philip Morris cigarettes had some preventative power, right? They were able to prevent problems. And you know, and people like you, people like me, people just like us, we believed it. We believed it. People just as smart, as progressive, as educated as you and I, 50, 100 years ago, we believed it. And, and it didn't matter that those beliefs uh, came about honestly, didn't believe that those matter, those beliefs were sincere. They were still devastating. They were wrong beliefs, and the consequences were devastating. Again, no matter how sincerely they were held, no matter how honestly they were come about, the false belief cost them health, uh, cost suffering, and in many cases, eventually cost lives. And so does it really matter what we believe? Does it actually make a difference to our life? And, and of course, yeah, the answer is yes here, because what we believe about reality, what we believe to be true, what we believe to be good, what we believe to be wrong, what we believe to be beautiful or ugly, it affects the decisions we make, the habits that we form, the habits that we choose to break. And, and, right, and I get it. Like, I, I'm sure all of us have probably had the thought at one time or another, does it really matter that much what I, what I believe? Isn't it just sort of enough to, to be a good person, to love others, to serve, to live a good life? And, and we're not, all this stuff about beliefs, and that's not that, why do we get bogged down in that? But all of those things, how do you define what a good life is? What does it look like to help and to love people? All of those underneath, they are rooted in a set of beliefs about what's really real, what's really good, what's really true. They're an outflow of our convictions about what is really real. And as we look at Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum, we're confronted with this question, and that is, what is the great danger that the church faces? Uh, what is the great danger that the church faces? And the, I think the stunning answer that Jesus makes clear in this letter is that Jesus actually thinks false belief is more dangerous to the church even than physical persecution. That Jesus thinks false belief is more dangerous to the church even than physical persecution. Last week, Pastor Taylor walked us through the letter to the church at Smyrna, and it was clear there Jesus recognizes this church is suffering, and he, all he does is just encourage them to, to be faithful in the midst of it. He doesn't seem concerned. He's not worried about it. And again, here we're introduced to, to Antipas, who, who died in Pergamum for his commitment to Jesus. And Jesus says, commends them for their faithfulness. Even in the days of Antipas when he was killed for being a faithful witness, 
He isn't wringing his hands about the suffering, but here in this letter, what he is really deeply concerned about is the incredible danger of holding to false belief, even if that belief is sincere. And so this morning, we want to ask three questions of this letter that Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum. And the first one is this, where do false beliefs hide? Where do false beliefs hide? The second question is, what do false beliefs lead to? And then finally, probably the most important question is, how do we hold on to the truth? How do we hold fast to the truth? So where does it hide? Where do false beliefs hide? What does it lead to? And then how do we hold fast to the truth? The first question we need to ask here is, is where do these false beliefs hide? Because they do hide. They aren't usually out in the open. And Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for holding fast. This language of holding is going to be key. Holding fast. And he warns them about the danger that some in their midst, though, are letting go of Jesus and instead holding fast to false belief, to false teaching instead. And so if you have a Bible, or you can pull it up on your phone, I want want you to take a look again. It's going to be on the screens as well. But take a look again at verses 13 and 14. And again, notice the language of holding in these verses. So Revelation chapter 2 Beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We'll get to that in a minute. What's that that all about? Yet you hold fast. You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there in Pergamum who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So some of the Christians in Pergamum were holding to a false set of beliefs that Jesus calls the teaching of Balaam. More on that in a, in a moment. We'll unpack, well, what is this Balaam-Balak stuff going on here? But again, the key question to ask here is where do false beliefs hide? And, and the answer is that they hide often in the stories that shape our desires, that they hide in the stories that shape our desires. False beliefs are most powerful, are most deceptive when they are embedded in a story. Uh, and let me show you what I mean by that by going back to smoking for just a minute. I've, I've never been a smoker, I've never smoked. I've, I've, from the time I was little, you know, educated about the dangers of smoking. But a few years ago when Mad Men was really popular, every time I watched an episode of Mad Men, and I saw Don Draper, right, in all of his coolness, and I got a picture here, I think, right, with that cigarette in his hand, right, and all the success and the power. There's part of me that's like, man, that looks cool, right? I mean, look, let's look at Don Draper there, holding that cigarette. There's a story that's powerful there that shapes my desires, what I want, This is, again, why in the battle against smoking that there was such a push to to take smoking out of television and movies, especially that were aimed at teens, because people recognize the power of story to shape belief and habit and desire. Now, in the city of Pergamum, they weren't watching Mad Men, but that city and culture also was steeped in powerful stories that, that hid false beliefs, that threatened to cause Christians to lose their grip on Jesus. Uh, and the ancient city of Pergamum overlooks the modern Turkish city of Bergama. And this is a picture of that here where you can see this is where all this was playing out in the ruins of that city. And again, Christians there faced persecution even to the point of death in the case of Antipas. 
But in this letter, Jesus warns not about physical persecution. He doesn't say, watch out for physical persecution because that is going to shake your faith and, and your, cause you to, to walk away from it. No, he says, the danger is false belief. False belief, which he refers to as the teaching of Balaam. So, okay, what's, what's the teaching of Balaam? What's that all about? Well, to make sense of that, you actually have to go back. Uh, we're almost at the very end of the Bible. You have to go back almost all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to uh, the Old Testament. There's kind of two big pieces in the Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all the way back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, which is the fourth book in the Bible. And you can read this account of Balaam and, and Balak in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. I encourage you, if you've never read it, to, to do that. But here's what's happening in that story. Uh, God has just delivered his people out of Egypt. If you've ever seen the, the Prince of Egypt film, you kind of know that story. He's brought the people out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years at this point. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And an enemy king, Balak, wants to stop Israel from coming into the land. And so he hires this guy, Balaam, to basically to curse them. He kind of wants to do this Harry Potter sort of thing and say, well, Balaam's kind of a sorcerer or whatever. We can get, get him to call down curses on God's people so that they will, you know, they, they'll be impeded. They can't go forward. They'll be stuck out here in the wilderness. They'll die, whatever. But the problem is that every time Balaam goes to, to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel, every time he opens his mouth, all he can say are words of blessing. God keeps intervening. And so what does Balaam do instead? We know from Numbers 25 and other places in the New Testament that what he does is he, he sends not an enemy with swords into the feet of the people. What he does instead is he sends in people who basically invite Israel into a different story. He sends in these people who begin to intermarry, who begin to bring their culture in to Israel. An alternate story, a Canaanite story that said, if you, if you sort of join with us and if you sort of worship our fertility gods and goddesses through these sexual practices and these kinds of sacrifices, then you know your crops will grow and be fruitful just like ours are growing and being fruitful. And, and you will have lots of children just like we're having lots of children. And your animals will, will have lots of offspring just like ours. And you don't have to abandon Yahweh. You don't have to abandon your God, but just worship these other gods along with us. That's the way that things work here in our culture. Just come along and do this with us. And many Israelites believed the story and they, they looked around and, and they were seeing the crops, the herds, their neighbors, and they began to adopt the, this is a problem for Israel throughout its history, they adopt the practices of their neighbors and they see this is the pathway to success. And Jesus says the same thing is happening in Pergamum. He wants them to know this is exactly what's happening. You're falling into this Balaam story. Being deceived. Those who are saying you can hold on to Jesus, but you don't have to suffer like Antipas. Uh, you can hold on to Jesus and, and go along with sort of the emperor worship and making some sacrifices, yes, to the, the Roman gods, but you don't have to really mean it. You just kind of go through the motions. It's not that big of a deal. But here's the thing. Going through the motions always shapes us. It always has consequences. It always forms us. False belief is dangerous 
more dangerous to the church even than physical persecution. And false belief always hides, always hides in a story. But why is false belief so dangerous? Even more dangerous than, than sort of physical persecution? Well, the question, that's the question we need to ask next. And, and it's the one that Jesus makes, the answer is really clear here, that, that false belief is so dangerous because it li- leads to fractured living. False belief is so dangerous because it leads to fractured living. Look again at verses 14 and 15, and you see how Jesus opens this up. He says, But a few things I have against you, that some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this group, the, the Nicolaitans. They're only mentioned here and then back in, in, uh, in the letter to the Ephesian church here in Revelation chapter 2. Um, but we do know, based on what Jesus says here, that they were teaching the same kind of compromise that Balaam was teaching back in the Old Testament, that you can be loyal to the one true God, but still engage in the practices of the culture uh, and run in an opposite way and still be loyal to, to the thing, as long as you don't really mean it. And again, the church in Ephesus, Jesus writes a letter to them, that was the first letter we looked at, and he commends them for rejecting, for hating those teachings, for not falling to them. But there are some in Pergamum who are being drawn in. And they were engaging in these practices of sacrifice and, and sexual infidelity and immorality, and they were fracturing their lives and threatening their allegiance to Jesus. Now, I think it's easy for us sitting here in 21st century Kansas City to think, oh, man, like how could they have been so blind, right? Like how, how would they have these Christians been enticed to go into a temple and, and worship and sacrifice and do this kind of temple prostitution thing? Like how could they be so blind? I would never do that. But it only seems so obvious to us because they were living on a different set of cultural stories than we do. But we do the same thing. It's just that our culture has different stories and different practices, So, for for example, one of our culture's stories is that the greatest goal in life is to get into the best possible college that you can so that you can make the most money that you can and live a comfortable life. Now, I don't think that most of us as Christians would say, I believe that's, that's, that's the greatest thing in life. But many of us have sacrificed relentlessly to live that story or to help our kids live out that story. And in the process, we, we make compromises, right? We, we sacrifice our schedules, our sleep, our children's childhoods to, to race, to academic achievement, our athletic accomplishment. It leads to fractured living where there's an increasing gap between our heads and our habits, between what we think and say we believe and how we actually live. And in the end, right, our habits and our practices, they always win out over our thoughts or what we profess with our mouth because they are what shape our lives and they can cause us to to have our hearts become hard to the things of of Jesus, to cause us to let go of him and, and to hold on fast to something else, which ultimately Jesus says puts us at war with him. 
Jesus uses a pretty powerful uh, image here. He says, verse 16, Jesus says to us, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus as kind of this docile or sort of kind of just flaccid person who doesn't ever speak boldly. Jesus says, I'm going to come and war against those who continue to hold to this teaching. A life of fractured living puts us at war with Jesus. We, we end up aligned against him rather than being aligned with him. Which is why Jesus thinks that false belief is even more dangerous than physical persecution. Right? That it, it's more, it, Jesus is basically saying, it is better to suffer with me to suffer for me than to be aligned in opposition against me. So we've seen that, that false belief hides in stories that shape our desires and that false beliefs, that they lead to fractured living. But then the most important question to answer this morning is, then how do we hold fast to the truth? How do we, like those in Pergamum who were holding fast to Jesus' name, who were holding fast to his teaching, how do we do that? They were holding fast to the truth, but not to the truth as an abstract idea. They were holding fast to the truth as a person. Jesus is the truth. When we talk about holding fast to the truth, we're not talking about just a set of ideas, but loyalty, a commitment to a person, the person of Jesus. If you look back in verse 13, Jesus says, you're living in an incredibly difficult place. He says this to the Christians in Pergamum. In fact, he calls it the place where Satan's throne is. The idea there is the place where Satan, where the enemy is ruling, right? The, the image of a throne is someone who has authority, power, right? And so he's saying you live in the place where Satan is ruling, where he is in charge, where he is getting done what he wants done. Church at Pergamon, you are living in that kind of a place where Satan is ruling, and yet you're holding fast. You're holding fast to my name. Verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So how do we do this? How do we live a life like Antipas? How do we live a life like those Christians in Pergamum who held fast to Jesus, even in the midst of incredible suffering? I think two things here this morning. First is this. We have to name the false stories that we're living Name the false stories that we're living. Because remember, false beliefs, they hide in these stories that shape our desires. So half the battle, most of the time, is actually just recognizing the stories for what they are, actually seeing them for what they are. A psychiatrist, Kurt, Tompkins, uh, or Kurt Thompson, is going to be with us actually in April. I'm really excited that he's coming. But in his book, The Soul of Shame, he writes this. He says, we name things to tame things. I love that, right? We name things to tame things. His point is this, that once we name and identify something like shame, in particular is what he's talking about in the book, all of a sudden it begins to lose its power. He said, oh, that's what, that, that's what that feeling is. That's what that emotion, I'm feeling shame right now. Oh, okay. I, now I know how to, to begin to confront that and deal with that. We name things to tame things. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in this letter. He says to the people, in prayer, he names the story, you're living the Balaam story. Like, wake up, church, don't you understand? You're living out the Balaam story. He gives it a name. 
So, so what are the names of some of those stories that, that we live out in our culture? And there are lots of them. Here are just a few. Uh, there's sort of the, the Lone Ranger, the Leave it be- to Beaver story. That's kind of the, the individualistic story that's so powerful in our culture. It's so has shaped us as Americans, this individualistic story. That, that if me and my family are good and happy and flourishing, that that's all that really matters. It says, I, I can make it on my own. I don't really re- need deep connections to other people. Sort of me, my family, my little circle is, is fine. And yeah, sure, there's lots of, of brokenness and hurting people out there, but so long as sort of me and mine are okay, as long as the systems and structures that exist work for me, then everything's good. Now, again, most of us, when you name the story like that, wouldn't say, well, I, I don't really believe that story. Of course, that's not right. But it is a powerful one, one that I live into often. Uh, for example, th- this week when the woman in Fort Worth, Texas, was killed by a police officer in her own home, I, I was heartbroken by that. I was, even felt sick to my stomach because I imagined her nephew there watching her die. But for the most part, I could move on with my day. But then I got a text from my friend, Stan Archie, who leads uh, our sister church, Christian Fellowship Baptist Church, a predominantly African-American church in our city, expressing how deeply he was struggling with the event, how deeply other leaders in his community were, how our brothers and sisters at, at Christian Fellowship were struggling, hurting in this event. The the individualistic story pulls me to a place of saying, that doesn't affect me, those aren't my problems. But the gospel story says that we're part of one body and that when one part of the body is hurting, the whole body feels it. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God has blended the body, giving greater honor to lesser members so that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have mutual concern for one another. If one member suffers, everyone suffers with it. If a member is honored, all rejoice with it. That's a better story. But it's not one that I often live. Here's another. Uh, let's call it the, the WALL-E story. Right, in, in the film WALL-E, if you've seen that Pixar film, the humans have sort of abandoned the earth because they've over-extracted from it, and they live on a spaceship where all they do is consume and buy and, and just are entertained. Right, it's a great picture, a deeply sobering picture of the consumer materialistic story that is so powerful in our culture. The false story that says what really makes us happy is consuming rather than contributing, of buying rather than giving, of watching a screen rather than being present with a person. Friends, brothers and sisters, how I, how you are often drawn into that story. Jesus tells a different story. Luke chapter 12, Jesus told them, Watch out and be on your guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable. He told them a story. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all of my grain and all of my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. 
And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That story of contribution over consumption is a better story. It's not one I often live. Uh, one, one more this morning. Uh, this one I call the, the friends story. Uh, this, is, this is the romance, the sexual fulfillment story, right? That, that life is ultimately about finding that romantic partner, finding sexual fulfillment, or finding sexual adventure. But when we believe that story, we, we turn relationships and people into idols that cannot bear the weight of our expectations. Your romantic partner, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, they can't be your savior. They can't give you all that you need, and yet that story says that person's everything. Or, or we compromise on God's design for sexuality that, that leads to a flourishing life because we think that we can experience sexual freedom when in fact those freedom outside of God's design is not freedom at all. It's actually an enslavement to our desires. So Paul tells a different story. 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. And all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? He tells a different story. Do you not know, brothers and sisters in Christ, he's saying, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor your God's Honor your God with your bodies. Again, this is such a better story. In fact, one of the reasons that women in particular were attracted to Christianity in the first century was the sexual ethic that was so much better for them and their children than the prevailing sexual ethic of the Greco-Roman culture. This is a better story. It's a better story of dignity and honor for women and for men, for the protection and flourishing of children. But it's a story that we are so willing to compromise because we think that, that sex will get us the relational partner that we long for or that porn will soothe the loneliness that we feel. But naming these stories is the first step to taming them. But like the allure of smoking in films and television, we still are drawn to these false beliefs, even once we start to able to begin to name them and say, ah, I, I, I see, I'm starting to live out that story. But we're still so drawn to them, right? Which is why we need the second step, and that is to be committed to a community of truth. Because every day, every moment, we are being formed. We're being drawn to these stories, these scripts for life, which hide false beliefs. Stories that make the Jesus story, the one true story about what is really real, seem silly, implausible, even oppressive. And this is why we need to be deeply committed to a local church community where we gather every week. The reason, one of the big reasons we gather every week is to retell the story of holiness and grace of beauty and forgiveness, of generosity, of Jesus' self-sacrificing love, of stronghold-destroying mercy, of habit-reshaping practices. To remind one another and together as a community to keep a close watch on our lives and on our beliefs, on the stories that we're living. To speak to one another, to speak life into each other, to, to point to one another and say, here's actually an area where you're, you're holding on to something that's going to bring death. You're keeping back an area of death in your life. 
that's going to lead you to abandon the one you love, the one who loved you first and gave himself for you. So are you deeply committed to a church body, to a particular local church? Not just the idea of church, not just to a relationship with Jesus, but to a community of people, to a particular church. And there are lots of ways to deepen and strengthen that commitment, uh, right? We, and we've mentioned a couple of them this morning in the, in the announcements. We, we talked about being baptized. If you've never been baptized, one of the best ways to commit yourself to a local church and family is to stand up in front of that family and, and publicly profess your allegiance to Jesus through baptism and invite them to, to hold you accountable in that. Another way is to take the step of becoming a formal member of a church, to actually make a formal commitment to say, I belong to this church. I'm committed to this place. They're committed to me. We're in this together. And here's another way, uh, and this is probably the, the most practical way. If you just want to make a habit of regularly being a part of church community, sign up to serve in some way on a Sunday morning. We will literally send you an email to remind you to come to church if you do that, because um, we're going to expect you to be here to make the coffee or to play in the band or to serve in children's ministry. We will send you a reminder, ask you to come to church, RSVP, the, uh, yes, I will be there. Do whatever it takes to deeply commit to the community of truth. Because either we will hold fast to Jesus or we will hold fast to false beliefs. We can't do both forever. But the good news is this. When we hold fast to Jesus' name, we're actually promised a new and better name. This white stone, it's this kind of mysterious image at the end of the text that you're actually given a new name, a new identity. And when we trust Jesus to provide and refuse to go after all the alluring meals that cultures offer us, we're given this, this hidden manna, this everlasting life, this true life in Jesus. And it's why we come together each week. It's why we sing. It's why we hear the, the word taught. It's why we celebrate communion. Because in the communion meal, we come to a place where we are able to each and every week go through these, this pattern of saying, yes, I <laughs> confess and repent of the false stories that I've been living out. And I receive forgiveness afresh for the places where, where that, that, those false beliefs have led to fractured living in my life. Reminded of the forgiveness that's available in the gospel. And when we commit together to following Jesus, to holding fast to him, where we're nourished and strengthened to hold on to the Jesus story. We come to a place where we repent of the way we've been living, believing the false stories of our culture, and name together and affirm that this, the story of Jesus' body broken, his bloodshed is the story that leads to life.